You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kibalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This is On Principle with Rabbi John Kroll, who is the principal of Salanter, Akiva, Riverdale. It's been a long time, John, and you know that the subtitle, I guess, or what our show is supposed to be about is Challenges in Jewish Education. Uh, I've told you many times, John, that um, you are really the most real Jewish educator day in, day out that we have on our show. We have people who write about education. We have people that have thought big things. We've had uh, heads of universities. Uh, we've had heads of uh, the ATT is in Chicago, which most people aren't going to know what that means. But, you know, but in the trenches, principles, it's really you, John. So I'm, I always cherish the the chance to really talk shop with, with somebody who's really holding there. So thanks for coming back to us. Thank you for having me. I cherish the time that I can spend listening to your podcasts. And if I can uh, have the honor of being on one of them, it's uh, even even more cherished. Well, we are always happy to talk about what's really going on. And of course, the school year uh, has already begun. By the time most people hear this, it's going to be really in full swing, and perhaps even during Yontif. But one of the things that you mentioned to me in one of our casual conversations that I thought we could really talk about is the fact that there's been a swing backwards in other words, at one point, one of the things that differentiated your school and many schools that we would call the modern Orthodox yeshivas, the ones that are, let's say, much more embracing of the world culture, people that are part of the grand conversation, was the fact that they didn't need the type of blinders and strictures that some of the other yeshivas were railing about and imposing. But what you what you told me in a conversation recently was that there's been a little bit of a shift backwards, specifically about something as essential, I guess, to people's lives today as their cell phones, as their phones. Uh, so tell me what's going on now, how this, the shift has occurred from what was and what is now. I think that there's certainly a good amount of this in the air right now. The uh, if you, Those who readers who read the Jewish link, there's a whole, you know, movement being um, kind of pushed by a lot of the day schools, in the Bergen County, Riverdale area, trying to like rethink the way we kind of educate towards using smartphones. Um, I think there is a little bit of a pendulum swing. I think that, you know, I think there's certainly initially a kind of acceptance with everything without any sort of restrictions. And I think that I don't see us going to kind of like installing filters in everyone's phones and having something that's going to feel very kind of big brother-ish. But I do think that there's a widely recognized you know, kind of understanding, parents, uh, teachers, and even students, that it's too much. It's too much, too all the time. It is just pervasive and oppressive, and it's just too much. And I think that I've said this to kids. I feel this myself when I look at my own cell phone. I don't think it's only a kid's problem. I think most problems are as much adult problems as they are kid problems. But, you know, I, I sometimes say to myself, I don't really remember what it was that I 
sort of like appreciated so deeply about the um, kind of like the, the, the lack of malacha on Shabbos is the way I appreciate it now. Ever since I've had a smartphone, like the onslaught and the constant emails that you're, uh, you know, kind of responding to and being productive and being responsive, it's nonstop. It's like, it's like, you know, I'm sure you'll appreciate the image of the kind of, uh, feels like the Lucille Ball, the chocolate factory. Um, and, and it just can't stop. In other words, basically what, what happens is because of the ubiquitous of, of, of the cell phone, because of the constant texts and messages, you don't even have a stream of concentration. You're, you're, you're either hearing yes. the vibration of your phone, you're hearing the ding. And just like I would say, you're right, the, the image of Lucy at the, uh, you know, on, on the assembly line, I also see it sometimes as the overwhelming footnotes in, in, in a safer sometimes, where you can't even read the Rishon because the Mechabrim have decided that there's got to be a footnote here and a footnote there and another note, and you don't get that stream of consciousness. What happens is, although we know intellectually that, that the message is probably not that important, but we still find ourselves looking at it. We find ourselves registering it. I'll say even more than that. I'm actually, I just wrote a very short essay that's I think being uh, printed in the Jewish link this this week. I just submitted it today. They asked like educators to put things in about technology, so I'm, I was on the rotation for this week. So I submitted something. Where I talked a little bit about this idea: the constant, nonstop assault of the self uh, of the smartphone. But also, my, 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 the way I look at it, it, it comes from a good place. In other words, I'm not even talking about people who are wasting their time on social media or other kinds of nonsense that, you know, that they might fi- feel is a waste of time. I'm talking about being productive. You get, I get lots of emails. People want answers to questions. I'm constantly, an- I'm doing good things. I- I'd like to even check out interesting Torah online. I- people doing real things that, that matter. It's just that it's nonstop. In other words, brilliance comes or greatness comes from an ability to push things out and delve into one thing for a long time in order to build it up. Yes. So yes. the little good things that you're doing put you in the put you in the status of a mediocre person as opposed to someone who a mediocre can be good. I mean, mediocrity can also do good deeds, but greatness is not being allowed for it to flourish. I think that's really the difference. I'd say even counterintuitively, one of the things I think that we miss out on, which I think is, you know, in, in the right measure, it's really a virtue, is the ability to have downtime, the ability to be bored, you know, the ability to allow yourself just to have a little bit of reverie and to think and, and to not be doing something. And I think that there's a certain, you know, kind of a, the, the enslaved to the idea of being constantly productive, it makes it impossible to st- stop and like daydream a little bit and to kind of think of things. It's like the, the, where, when do you have the opportunity to do that? I guess Shabbos, you have the opportunity to do it. Other than that, I, I'm just always like responding. It's sort of two sides of the same coin. The reverie and this sort of mochen dekatnus, as it's called in Chassidus Shasvarim, Allows the mochan the goblins to happen, but where but when you're constantly on, then again what you have is a sputter of life, 
but never that great vista. And, and there are many people who actually have decided in their lives that they only look at their phones once a week or something like that, or they only check their mail once a week. I, I, I've read books uh, from that were written by these people, and they talked about how they shunted and, 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 and pushed against the grain. But practically, John, when you talk about what we can do, let's talk about one of the, uh, the things that are done in some of the more middle of the road to be machmer yeshivos is they know they can't stop the kids from having the cell phones, from having a smartphone. So they tell them they need to, everyone has to give their smartphone uh, to uh, a certain uh, a certain place where they're all either plugged in and they stay away and they stay there for during the storm. They're allowed to get them during lunch. Then they have to all dutifully put them back. And then at the end of the day, they pick them up. Does that sound like something that? Uh... I think it's a great, I think, I think it's a great thing. I think it's like, listen, you have a, there are technical like, you know, challenges in making that happen. But I, I think in principle, it's the right thing. It's the right way to go. Um, you know, I'll tell you, it's a very interesting, almost like social psychology experience this year. What we did was, um, the policy has always been that kids can't use, you know, kids can't use their cell phones in school, uh, during class, not during school, during class. Um, if you use it during class, the, the, the policy is it's taken away, you get it at the end of the day, it happens a few times, your parents have to come in, stuff like that. It's been somewhat enforced, not that carefully enforced. Is part of the reason why it's not so enforced because the teacher feels hypocritical because he's got his cell phone with him? Yeah, there's a piece There's a piece to that. and there's, Yeah, yeah, I think there's a piece to that. So what we did this year, something really interesting. What we did was we bought wooden boxes. You got them on Amazon. They have slots for like, you know, 30 little slots in this wooden box that's about like, you know, the size of a, I don't know, about the size of a laptop computer. And we screwed it into the teacher's desk in each in each room so that there's a box on each teacher's desk in every room in the high school for kids to put their phones when they come into class. I'll tell you, this is what's interesting. Okay, school's going on for a week and a half, so I'm not sure what it'll be like six months from now. We could check in again. But kids walk into the room and they put their phones in the boxes and then sit down in class and class goes on normal. What's fascinating to me is that kids actually do it. In other words, if a teacher were to say to the students, okay, everybody put your phones on my desk, it would be much harder to make happen. There's something about the fact that there's actually school, again, invest, I don't know, it was like $15 a box. It wasn't like a ton of money. It's there. There's an expectation and it's, there's like, you know, just a, a, almost like a process and a protocol. So people will do it. And kids find it liberating. Uh, no one wants to be, I shouldn't say no, again, obviously people would rather not have any restrictions, of course, but there, there's, I think kids find it sensible. That's why I think, so I think the biggest thing to do at this point, at least in our, my kind of environment here, is to have students realize why these sorts of restrictions are good for them, why they want them. In other words, there are some things we do discipline-wise in school where I think a, a student doesn't really want me to be disciplined to them about this. And that's part of the system. That's the way it works. And then other things like this, like, you know, where like here, kids don't really hit books. The, the first example would be you're not allowed to take more than like a, like, a te, like a five minute break in class. So a kid doesn't really want me to come down hard on them and say, 
you're out for more than five minutes, you got to back to class. Like they're, they're like, okay, listen, if I can manage it, I can manage it. Okay, I, I can't. I understand why he would push back on that. And you know, oh, leave me alone. I, I'd like to take a break. Here, I actually think students understand and need to understand more why this is like my life is going to be enhanced if I'm not feeling the constant tug, that itch to always be checking out the uh, cell phone. The only thing I would say, John, is that because SAR, like many modern schools, uh, you go from class to class, there's a couple of minutes of, of busy work that takes away from instruction. Wouldn't it be great if there just be like a homeroom and then you just kept it there till lunch? There are a lot of schools in our orbit that are trying out things like that this year. I think there's a real push, you know, amongst schools in the kind of like, you know, Yeshiva High School League to try different sorts of things. Phones not allowed in the building. Phones parked in one area before school starts. You pick it up at, at the end of the day. I think there are a lot of places I'm excited that a lot of schools are doing this. And I'm sure we're going to learn from the wisdom that which worked, that which didn't work. And like, you know, we're going to adapt. And it sounds like, although, you know, you expect the, the students to to come to it on their own, I think uh, there's probably documentary evidence and maybe films that could be shown to students to show, look at the way, look what it is when you are like a, like that mouse in the maze stuck to your cell phone and how you're running. Yes, there's that. You know what it also feels like? Would it, would it be accurate to kind of, liken this to uh sorcerer's apprentice just a bit it's like speak speaking it's about out of mice, control yes, because mickey as mickey as, yes i yes, get yes, it yes. right but 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 i think if they could see it if they if there would be a a, a science program or a or, or or somebody should produce a type of video the same way like when we go for teacher training and they show us these videos about respecting the space of others or like you know the we, we have a whole week of orientation where you have these, you know, bad actors indicate what, what you shouldn't be doing and what you shouldn't be violating. Why can't there someone create a video for educational purposes to show this is your brain with a cell phone, this is your brain without a cell phone? And maybe that as a, like a little piece of propaganda could maybe sell it. And, and because it's not really propaganda. Yeah, I think that that's right. You know, I'll tell you an interesting thing, you, you know, one of the things I was thinking about, you know, the the very uh, prescient uh, kind of analysis, uh, the you know, the famous line from, uh, you know, I think it was in the 60s or 70s, um, you know, the, the Marshall McLuhan's, uh, you know, the me- medium is the message. I saw a thing, I looked, I was doing a little bit of research looking into this, kind of, you know, kind of looking at things he wrote and kind of the way he talked about media and the way that. It would just sometimes it's it's not about like he, he was interested his point was interesting he thought he was talking about tv he wasn't talking about cell phones cell phones didn't exist and his point about tv was that tv is about entertainment that's the medium and so don't get caught up on like what the content is it's not about whether you're watching like you know uh you know i think at his time i think it's in the 80s when he came with this it's it's like you know the a team or 60 minutes or it's all everything's entertainment and so don't get, you know, that's what the, the medium itself is a message that you're, that we're, we're training ourselves to be entertained. Listen to this line. This is so good. I'm curious what you think about this. I just pulled it up right now. He says, 19, it's actually 1964. Our conventional response to all media, namely that is how they are used that counts, is the numb stance of the technological idiot. 
for the content of a medium is like the juicy piece of meat carried by the burglar to distract the watchdog of the mind. You know, uh, I'm doing, I'm responding to email. I'm responding to emails and I've got like Torah on Twitter and I've got all these positive things. And so that, that juicy steak is distracting is the burglar social media and cell phone usage and the iPhones. They're using that content to, you know, kind of lull me to sleep. So while they steal my attention and my whole psyche. I guess, you know, with TV in, in the 60s, the point was, is that the subliminal or open messages of buying this detergent or smoking this cigarette will get to you. In other words, whether it's going to be Edward R. Murrow or later 60 Minutes, I've got you in the seat. And since I've got you in the seat, eventually you're going to see that image and remember it's going to be Dove uh, soap or palm olive or whatever, Crest toothpaste when you go to the store. So I think that's what he's talking about. The question is, what is the end game here? Is the end game here that you become satiated with all this information and you buy another uh, iPhone that's that, that's going to need the upgrade that'll give more money to the people producing? I, it's hard for me to imagine the kind of like the march of technology kind of really slowing down. It's hard for me to imagine that we're going to get to the point where people are going to, you know, willingly forgive up smartphones because let's be honest, there's just too much good. to. I, 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 need, I need ways. I need Google maps. I want access to my email. Like there's a lot of good stuff there. It's just that it's not the technology itself that I want to get rid of. It's like me. I want to get, I, I need to like adjust my own attitude. And if, and it's, and again, when I talk about it with kids, it's like, the kids copy what the adults do. Okay, this is not. This is not like a you know. Oh, kids uh, these days they don't know how to what it was like back in the day when we before when we had flip phones or when we had rotary phones or when we had you know homing pigeons. Uh, you know whatever it is, it, that's not like that. I think the, there's no. I, I don't see that much of a difference between kind of student behavior and this sort of thing and adult that's behavior. What I meant before about why it's almost impossible. I, I think it's impossible to enforce. And I think this is what you need to speak with your staff. I think there's got to be a school-wide a great conversation about this in any school, which is we want to be learners. We want to be teachers. We want to we want to absorb. We want to learn from each other. And the way to do that, the best way, is to make only selections from where we need the media in. And we, we can see how we can thrive and how it's actually going to make us into independent thinkers as opposed to absorbers. Yeah. I think kids get that, especially when they realize that the talents of independent thinking is what's going to get them ahead in whatever vocation they choose to be part of. So, John, so this is an interesting thing that it isn't necessarily the fire and brimstone screaming that was done against the internet and against smartphones and possibly people who have them, but it, in a way is shares that concern. Yes, maybe the Haredi Velt, uh, especially in Eretz Yisrael, and maybe even like the uh, the big uh, Met Field convocation against the internet and smartphones, uh, perhaps it seemed to be overkill. But their point, though, has now been understood to the chagrin of many. And, and I think it might even show, John, in the, the, the test scores 
uh, and we could probably indicate that if we go back to the test scores and that type of thinking pre the cell, pre the smartphone, to post the smartphone, we might be able to indicate that that type of original thinking and understanding and analysis has suffered. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure how to do gather that data, but I, I suspect I would not be surprised if the data ends up supporting what, what you're saying. Listen, I, I definitely think that there's something about kind of like that, that, that a CIFA is too, too much for me, right? But the general principle, the garin of that uh, thinking, totally subscribe to it in ways that I probably wouldn't have, you know, 10, 15 years ago. I find it very, almost like charming and admirable. I have a nephew who's learning in Lakewood who, it's not that he doesn't have a smartphone. He doesn't have a flip phone. He doesn't have a cell, there's no cell phone. He doesn't have a cell phone. It's like, I'm not sure how to find it. And like, you know, he figured it out. Like, you know, just like, it's, it's like he has a, he probably has much more space in his mind and his life to do things that he wants to do than, than many other people do. Again, I'm not, I'm not winding back the clock, but there's, it's, this, it's definitely in need of a pendulum, you know, moving a little bit in the other direction so that it ends up a little bit more in the middle, I, I think, you know. One of the things that, that if we go back to that charming era that I grew up in was that when we didn't live in the text world, we, first of all, had to have the courage sometimes to be able to summon up the words that we needed for a conversation, whether it was on the phone or face-to-face. Um, texting with the emojis that go with it really allow a person almost to uh, to be a coward when it comes to uh, conversation. I'm not sure I agree with that. Now, there's like, I, I, I hear it. I think it's a possibility. That, that's, not, that's not the kind of thing that I, I don't know. I'm not really... That doesn't kind of get my goat that much. I'm not so. I, was, I, I could even argue that texting has allowed the shy person to be able to communicate so much better than they were in the past, and that you know, and that there's something very. I assume many people like have this experience that I have. I'm in like a number of different WhatsApp groups, some family, different family members that, and and I do find the the selecting the choice. GIF to respond to uh, something is itself a, it's like a different form of communication. It's like, you know, I don't know, it's something clever, something thoughtful about it. Let me put it this way. In one of my uh, many jobs, I remember that the principal was, was discussing something with me and he was in the next room and he was texting me and I was like around the corner and I realized where he was and I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the text from him and he's trying to explain himself to me through this text. And I said to him, Rabbi Cloney, I'm right here. And you know I'm right here. That wasn't <laughs> me, was it? No, no. Why are you doing this? I, let me, there's another thing which I think texting has done. You're right. It, it does help for the shy person. But what it also does is, and, and you can see this, I think, really in the quality of, of people's essays and, and what when people need to write, there was a time that the way you needed to respond to someone in a letter, you needed to at least take the time to fashion something. And, 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 and whether you didn't necessarily have to be Dickens or Thomas Hardy, but you definitely wrote in a way that was meaningful and that the sentences had a certain power to them because you realized you weren't going to be getting an immediate response. 
You weren't going to be getting a back and forth. It was almost like an anecdotal done in the most beautiful prose. I hear it. I think there's something to what you're saying, but I also think that like that to me, like reminds. I, I like reading sometimes um, some of the writing by uh, John McCorder on the way language develops and his general attitude is to embrace the sort of the flexibility and the new, the way, the way that there's, you know, kind of a n- new ways of talking and maybe perhaps less formal. And that's just kind of the way things are baked in. And, you know, like they talk about the Eskimo having 16 words for snow or a thousand words for snow. 40, 50 years ago, people were able to describe, like I, for example, no one's, this is not video, but behind you, is sort of like a field that looks like it might be an Eretz Yisrael. And I think 50 years ago, people would have been able to use a number of different adjectives and a number of different evocative words to explain that because that was the way they conversed. And if whether it was something that was arid, smoky, insect-filled, you, you were forced to put those words in a creative way. Today, a student could buckle over and say, what do I need to learn how to write uh, these creative sentences for? My conversations are in three or four sentence texts. And that's that's the way we converse. That's the way we write. That's the way, even long distance, I think something has been lost. You're right. You, you, you might want to say, John, that, yeah, well, well, this is an evolution of language. But you know what? I would I would like to mourn the literacy and the ability of the more common person of those days to actually appreciate the fineries of this English language. There's a reason why English became the lingua franca of the world is because of of, of its richness. And it seems to me that when you don't need all these rich adjectives and and, and verbiage, when you can basically get your point across, because the, listen to what I'm saying, the immediacy of the conversation, I don't need to impress you. Did you get the point? Zing, 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 zing. So the, these words that. now become obsolete, and it becomes something that's part of a of a past that's only studied by people, uh, professors in some uh, hallowed university. Whereas it used to be part of the language. When Mark Twain wrote his sentences, and you know, when we read them, it's because his readers understood them. The average nineteenth-century reader. You're right. There were a lot less. There were a lot of hillbillies and Appalachian people who were illiterate and couldn't pick up the book. But the people who did read had a greater amount of knowledge of the richness of the language. Otherwise, these writers wouldn't have been wouldn't have sold a copy of their books. John, you know, related to what we've been talking about is this move, you know, towards what we call a frumer attitude without necessarily donning the frumkite itself. I thought it was interesting, something else that you mentioned to me, which I think I'd like to say might be part of the same thing. You mentioned to me that this last Motzei Shabbos, something which wasn't true when I was in SAR, there was actually a Slichos service. In other words, at SAR. Now, now we know Slichos during the week is sort of like part of davening, but the first Slichos in the Ashkenazi world has always been this sort of like hallowed event that occurs at, at Chatzos or around there, uh, however you interpret right. Chatzos. And this was always something that was part of the synagogue, part of the shul and the chazan with the big cap. And yet you decided to, years ago, a number of years ago, to have this in school. So talk about that a little bit, because I think that's also, in a way, a, a very interesting phenomenon. I think it's great. Listen, I, with, there's, I, I'm very careful to not want to compete 
with shuls and to feel like you're taking kids away from shuls. But I do think that there are a bunch of kids who find it much more meaningful to be in school where they're familiar with and to dive in there. It was great. What are I going to tell you? It's like there's nothing like you know being in the shul with – and there were community members. We did it jointly with the shul. And we had a lot of kids joining us for Slichos. So I, I do think that the kids really enjoy the opportunity to be in school with teachers at times that are not school and to be able to daven and sing. And listen, there's no, we did not do this. It was not like a musical. Uh, we, had, we had a kumzitz before uh, where there was music, but it wasn't like musical instruments and slichos, but, but it was the, the lishmoa el harino of el hatfila. The whole thing was in it with, was, it was to, uh, you know, uh, one of those Yadid Nefesh tunes, and it was beautiful. And you had everybody singing at the top of the lungs, the, the Reno and the Tefillah, and kids with their arms around each other. It was beautiful. It's a beautiful thing to do. And I do think that there are, you know, there's a real striving for reaching greater heights in like Ruchnius. And, and really, there's a lot of people for whom so, this place so Again, let's, let's contrast the people who might not be aware that, of course, in Yeshivas, of course, you're there for sleep in a full trenched yeshiva where you're there day and night, where you're in the dorm, of course, you know, I have to tell you when, when I went to yeshiva near Yisrael, where, where your brother uh, is so prominent, Suichos was an early morning Suichos, meaning, right, we didn't have Suichos Saturday night. I think that's it. Is that, not, that, is that the standard practice in like yeshivas? This was 50 years ago when I, when I, when I attended my first Suichos in yeshiva, uh, and it was very different than what I was used to, which was your middle of the night, Saturday night, hallowed event. Um, but the point, though, is the same, is that, yes, part of being in yeshiva was the avoda of Yom Neroyim together. It wasn't just the classes you went to. You were part of the Elul and Yom Neroyim experience. And it was, in a way, the high point uh, of your year was experiencing the avoda Hashem happening as part of your schooling it was all it, it all fused together what again we know john both of us because i think we both ran a minion together so we know the struggles that he that evolve and that are part of running a minion in a modern day school a modern yeshiva school it, it, it's it's not an easy thing uh, and, and many people uh, could argue whether it's even should be part of the, the day because of all the negativity that many times erupts when you, we end up, instead of being, you know, modeling good behavior and modeling Avodah Hashem, we end up having to tell people to be quiet and to stay in line or whatever it is and to, to stop talking with their friends. So it, it's, it's, it's great when you can have an event like you described that people come willingly and they actually get it that this is they're approaching Yom Adin together, and it was it, 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 they didn't have to be there, but everybody who was there really felt it and meant something. Let me just say one other thing. One of the things that a student who's used to going with his parents to shul feels like, well, am I going to go to the youth minion on Rosh Hashanah and during Slichos? There is no youth minion, and therefore they sort of feel like. Okay, I just got to sit here in my seat that my dad bought for me, or my mom, with my mom, with my dad, wherever it is, and I don't play any sort of role. I I can observe. I hope I'll know what the page is. I hope I have the right type of machzer. But I, I definitely feel like an infantryman, 
where there's a lot of lieutenants and colonels. I'm just like a little nobody. I think ha- being in, in school, I, even if they weren't the cousin, but they felt this is my place. I can actually bring to here my my memories and, and I, I can create something novel for myself where I'm, even though I'm, I know I'm only a teenager, this is my shul. This is where I actually thrive. Yeah, it was familiar. It was familiar. It was familiar. It was like it was. It was very beautiful. So here's where I'm leading to you. So now that that worked, why not go the next step, John? Why not say, look, as as unusual as it is, we would like to invite everyone, and we're going to make it happen if we get the re- reservations in on time that we can have a Rosh Hashanah experience where for the two days we're going to have davening in the school we're going to have the bali tefillah from people that they know and the boys and girls would again feel a sense of ownership and avodas hashem that they would not get at home i know it would mean a cost for those parents that they they're not going to have their kids with them for rosh hashanah or for that yontif whatever it is but look at the educational benefit and the spiritual benefit your should be a proof the same that that maybe this is the way to go yeah, I mean, I hear it. I, I, I would, you know, there's something like they're going to get that experience. They go after they graduate high school. There's something about. I mean, there's two things. One, I'm not really interested in running a Shabbaton over the course of Yuntif because you've got to. Have, it's not like when you're yeshiva, you just kind of let the kids. You got to really supervise. And the second thing is, I, I do think that it's good to be with your family. Also, what I like about the slichas is like. It's 45 minutes on a Motsi Shabbos, and then you go home and be with your family. I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't want my, my, my own kids like leaving my family. They're going to be gone. As soon as they graduate high school, they're going to Yeshiva. They're not there. I, I, I'd be careful about losing them. Okay. This really goes into the usual debate that we have about, are we just holding them in a freezer or whatever it is till they go to Eretz Israel where they develop? Or do we want to begin that type of adult beautiful way of thinking even when they're when they have the brains and capacity to do it even in high school oh yeah yeah i'm not so sure that like i don't i'm not sure that that's like the ideal it's just like hard to do i think there's something very beautiful about different shuls have their own you know nigunim and you remember that as you're growing up and you you have your you know what it's like to be with your family and different men hug him i'm not so sure that i want to i want to jettison that i don't know well, again, you know, this is really, it's, there's always a cost. And I, I can tell you that, although you're right, the minhagim of the, you know, which simonim you're going to have and, and you know, or when, are we going to eat the head of the fish? Are we going to eat the head of a sheep? Or what are we going to do? And is the mom going to, and the mom and the kids going to say, oh, don't bring in the fish head. Oh, it's disgusting. Right. You're right. There is a sweetness to that, a cuteness to it. But that's really balanced against the fact that you you have a Rosh Hashanah, you have a Rosh Hashanah where the kids actually come into it and actually end up elevated. I can tell you that it didn't last a whole year, but I, I can remember, especially you know a Yom Neroyim uh, Avoda that I had when I was in tenth grade, and it it, it changed a lot of my. Uh, perspective on things. By I was I, I, I was in tenth grade, and the person that I was sitting next to was Rapinchas Hirschbrung's son. Mm-hmm. 
And we bonded over that. He, of course, was one of the great geniuses of the 20th century. And we got to know each other over davening. And from there, we really formed a lifelong friendship that was very important. And, and even the fact that, you know, you, you talk about Rosh Hashanah being difficult. How about, you know, again, I think Yom Kippur is not, it would be there. You know, that might be something. I think, you, you know, you're right. You, want, you would like, and all the teachers would like that, they're avoda. And Shabbatot means that they're on. But uh, the we can dream, can't we? And I think we can dream about, because uh, there's nothing like the pendulum swinging in a way that, as Rev. Reinus said, we, we all can complain about the modern irreligious state of what's happening in Eretz Yisrael and what's happening as they're building the country. But if the if, if we invest it with our own religious sensibilities, that merger of the modern outlook with our religious sensibilities produces something great. I can see that in terms of what of, of these schools, in terms of their avoda in in, in the Yom Tovim. And um, yeah, we can always hope just something, as I say, John, to plant an idea into the mind of one of the premier educators in the United States today. So take care, my friends. Again, and as we say, you'll be hearing this, of course, perhaps afterwards. And we'll catch you, John, hopefully in the not so distant future. Looking forward. Take care. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 